Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Okay, uh, we are going to be opening our Bibles now. We're getting back into Genesis for another week. Who's enjoying our Genesis series? I know I am. I love going through it. Uh, we are up to Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. So that's the last couple of verses of 26. There's this little bit tacked on the end there. And then we're also going through all of chapter 27. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you and you would like to have one open in front of you, there's baskets down the aisles. You can grab one of those and take a Bible out. And if you haven't got a Bible at home and you would like one, you are welcome to take that home and keep it. Um, I'm reading from the NIV. So Genesis chapter 26, starting at verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basmath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then... Get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully to what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you the, his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. 
So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and made all his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you go, grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Amen. Thank you, Hayden. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back in officer, isn't it? It's great to be down on your level again too, without bright lights in my eyes. I can actually see your faces, so if you fall asleep, I will know. 
couple of things I just want to let you know about before we get into it this morning. The first one is that this Friday I'm heading overseas to the UK for a couple of weeks, uh, going with the Baptist Union, um, representing Follow, and we're going to look at some of the different missional things that they're doing in the UK. Uh, the UK are a little bit further ahead than us as a society in terms of being post-Christian, and so there's a lot we can learn in terms of the mission they're doing and the effectiveness they're having. So we're going to be going to London and travelling right around different areas and visiting different missional expressions. So um, if you can be praying for me um, during that, that'd be really appreciated. And hopefully we can learn some new things to bring back and apply in the future here in Australia. The second thing is that um, in the last few months, um, the leadership has really sensed there's been a real heaviness here at Follow, um, a real spiritual attack. And there's been a number of things going on. There's been cancer diagnoses. There's been tumours found. There's been lost loved ones. There's been things like mental and emotional issues, conflict with family and amongst friends, marriage struggles. And there just seems to be too much of it to be a coincidence. And so today we really want to, um, at the end of this sermon, open up uh, down the front here behind the speakers so you can hear. We want to open up some space for prayer. And so at the end of this sermon, um, we're going to have some songs and the worship team will play. And we want to invite you forward if you need prayer for any of those issues or anything else that's going on in your life. Um, the Bible tells us that we're in a spiritual battle and that we need to stand and fight against it. And greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And so it might not be your tradition or your practice to come forward for prayer, but I want to encourage you today, if you're struggling with any of those things or you need prayer for anything at all, to step out of your comfort zone, to come forward, and we're going to believe that God is going to do something significant uh, in our community and in your life as well. Ephesians 6 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Today we want to stand together in prayer and believe that God is a supernatural God, an all-powerful God, who can change the circumstances and give us peace um, through whatever we may be going through. So I want to encourage you at the end of the service to come forward for prayer if you need it. Today we're continuing our series, as Hayden has already said, through Genesis. And today we're once again focused on Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the contrast between Esau and Jacob. Esau, the older son, is your outdoors kind of a guy. He loves the simple pleasures of life and he seems to be ruled by his appetites. Jacob, on the other hand, is your indoors kind of a guy, and he seems to be more intelligent. But he's also a master of manipulation. He's an opportunist. And in the last account we read about these two, Jacob used his superior intellect to trick Esau into trading his birthright. The birthright was the priestly role within the family and a double portion of the father's inheritance. He, he tricked Esau to trade his birthright for one bowl of red stew which is pretty significant. I don't know about you and whether you can remember a time in your life when you have been fooled. I remember a time in our life, soon after we were married, where Kim and I were fooled. I received a phone call one day. It was one of those cold calls from a number you don't recognise, and it was back in the day when I used to answer those calls. And I picked it up, and it happened to be from a company selling a vacuum cleaner called a Kirby vacuum cleaner. Anyone ever heard of a Kirby vacuum cleaner? 
So I got this phone call from this guy. I don't know what the vacuum cleaner's like. I think it probably picks up a bowling ball. But if you ask the salesman, they will tell you it can pick up a horse. Like it's really powerful and it's amazing and you've got to have it. And so I had this phone call from a Kirby salesman and he said, we're offering to steam clean your entire house if you allow us to come over for 15 minutes and tell you about this amazing vacuum cleaner that we have. And so Kim and I thought, well, this is an amazing deal. We had a toddler and a puppy who'd made a bit of a mess of the carpets. And so we thought 15 minutes to have our whole house steam clean, that's a good deal. Now, our house was 11 squares and half of it was tiles. So it was about five squares of carpet, but it was free. And so we thought, let's have this guy over. Now, if it seems too good to be true, probably is. And so this guy came over and he started showing us about this vacuum cleaner. And surprisingly, it took a lot longer than 15 minutes. But he was very convincing. And we agreed it looked like a good vacuum cleaner. And then we came to the magic question, how much does it cost? And he said, it costs $1,500. And I thought, $1,500, that's a lot of money for me right now. But it was a huge amount of money back then, $1,500. And so I politely said, we can't afford $1,500. He said, that's okay, I can ring my manager, we can see what we can do. So he jumped on the phone before we could even you know, object, and he talked to his manager, and they talk out really loud like they're having a genuine conversation. And he gets off the phone, he says, good news, I can do it for $1,200, and we've got a payment plan. This is wonderful, $1,200 on a payment plan, what an amazing deal. And coincidentally, my manager's in the area. He's just around the corner. He's going to come over. He's got the paperwork. So within five minutes, he knocked on the door and he came in the house. Now, if the salesman was like the Andrew Gaze of sales, the manager was like the Michael Jordan of manipulation. Like he was an absolute guru. He worked his way all the way up the pyramid and now he was a manager. And he put on us what you could only call the hard sell. He really put pressure on things like, you know, you'd be crazy to miss this. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Please don't tell anyone we're giving you this deal because technically we can't go this low. This is incredibly low. This will never be repeated again in the history of the world. And it was at that moment, simultaneously, Kim and I realized the irony of the situation. We were being sucked in by vacuum cleaner salesmen. And so after three hours in our home, trying every manipulation, high-pressure trick in the toolbox, I virtually had to physically push them out of our house. And you'll be pleased to know we did not become Kirby vacuum cleaner owners, and we did not receive our free steam clean. But we did lose three hours of our lives that we'll never get back. And when those people left the house, Kim and I came to a consensus right there and then. And the consensus was this, that never again... Would we allow someone to come into our house and try and manipulate us in that particular way? There's an old saying, you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Which brings us to Esau. In the story of Esau, we come to the moment where he's sucked in for the second time by his brother Jacob. He's completely duped and deceived. This time it's not for his birthright, but it's for the father's blessing. For the firstborn son, in their culture, there were two major privileges. There was the birthright and there was the blessing. And the blessing was something that typically happened towards the end of their father's life. The blessing involved words of encouragement, sharing the, the blessing of the father's estate, and prophetic words spoken over the future of your firstborn. It was a special moment. It was an immense privilege for the firstborn son. It's something you'd never forget. 
And the moment had arrived in this particular family. Greg last week shared all about Isaac, their father. And at this point of the narrative, Isaac is now close to death and he's completely blind. He can't see a single thing. And so he calls out for Esau, his firstborn son, and he says, Esau, I'm now an old man. And I don't know when I'm going to die. It could be any moment. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow and head out into the open country and get some wild game for me. Prepare the kind of you know, tasty food I like. Bring it to me to eat so I may give you my blessing before I die. And so Esau heads straight out into the open country. He's been looking forward to this moment and so he's eager to get out there and start doing that. However, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overheard the conversation and Jacob was her favourite son, not Esau. And so she devised a scheme very quickly with Jacob to help him get the blessing of his father before his brother arrived home. So she said to Jacob, now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you the blessing before he dies. Now, Jacob thinks this is a great idea. But he realises, uh, even though Isaac is blind, his brother Esau is super hairy and he's not. And he's worried that if his dad grabs a hold of his hands or his arms, he's going to know straight away that it's not Esau, it's Jacob. But Rebecca, his mum, is one step ahead with the plan. She's thought about it from the start to the finish. And so from the goats they use for the stew, she takes the goat skins and she places them on Jacob's arms so that hairy like Esau's and Isaac was fooled. To cut a long story short, uh, Isaac seems a little suspicious at times, but in the end, he believes that Jacob is Esau. And so he speaks some beautiful prophetic words over him. He gives Jacob the blessing that was rightfully Esau's. Esau, meanwhile, arrives back from the open country with the stew that he has prepared. And he said to Isaac, his father, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now, Isaac, at this point, has just eaten two goats worth of stew. Like, he's completely stuffed. You know, after a Sunday lunch, you're absolutely full. You don't want to see food for a month, and you are ready for an afternoon nap. Well, this is where Isaac was at, and he's confused. And he responds by saying, who are you? Esau says, I am your son, your firstborn son, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob, which means usurper, deceiver. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've made him lord over you and have made all of his relatives his servants and I've sustained him for the future with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this story from a divine level, from a divine perspective. And we considered, even in this messy story, that God was sovereign over all of these circumstances. 
And so even though at a human level, when we look at this story, it appears that Jacob received the blessing in his life through deception, at a higher level, divine level, we see particularly with the benefit of hindsight that God chose and allowed Jacob to prosper even when his behaviour was questionable. So even when there's chaos at a human level, God is still ultimately in control. Most of us wouldn't have chosen Jacob. Jacob was not our kind of guy. He was a deceiver. But we're not God. And as we look at his life and the extraordinary things that God did through him, which we've all benefited from, we have to conclude that God knew things that we couldn't have known. And God saw things in Jacob that we couldn't see. And we're reminded that God is God and we are not. And so we considered this story from a divine level. Today I want to bring it from the divine level back down to the human level. Because at a human level, we can all relate to parts of this story. All of us have experienced hurt and let down at various times from people in our lives, even people we trusted, sometimes those who are the closest to us. Our friends, our family, maybe even people in this room. And the question is, how should we respond How do we navigate the human level with a divine perspective? As we consider Esau's response to Jacob's deception and betrayal, there are some lessons we can learn about how we should respond to conflict. If we look at verse 41, it says that Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. I want to stop there for a moment because I think this is so relatable. We can all relate to this situation. We can completely understand his feelings. We can almost sense and feel his hurt. These two major blessings for Esau, two big occasions, his birthright and his blessing. Jacob had stolen the first one years earlier. And they've kind of worked through that. And they've remained under the same roof in the same household. But now in the second big moment, the other significant blessing for Esau, Jacob, his brother, a close family member, a person he should be able to trust for the second time just swoops right in and steals his blessing from right under his nose. You can understand completely why he's upset. We get the reason why Esau held a grudge. And so when we bring this story down to a human level, we can understand the emotions of what's going on. And we can't help but confront in our humanity Issues such as betrayal and conflict and forgiveness. In the everyday journey of life, all of us will face a situation where we have one of two options. We can either choose to forgive or we can choose to hold a grudge. And they are two very different paths with two very different destinations. This was one of those moments for Esau. And he chose not to forgive his brother. He chose to hold a grudge And there's no doubt that there's been time in our lives when we've done the same thing or made a similar choice. And the first thing I want to say today is this, that grudges can be deadly. Grudges can be deadly. I'm just going to try and get this thing to work. Excellent. There we go. Grudges can be deadly. The dictionary definition of a grudge is a persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. Esau was hurting and he chose to hold a grudge. Let me say that again. He chose to hold a grudge against Jacob. Now we can understand that. 
And we could even justify a similar thing in our own lives if we went through a situation like this. But the question is, is that what God would want from his chosen people? Just this week in the Northern Territory, we saw the devastating effects of someone holding a grudge. We saw a a man go on a rampage. Witness Leah Potter told the Today Show she'd followed a police officer to the scene of the shooting at the motel. She said, we followed him and the scene that we came across, I could not even believe that this could happen in Darwin, she said. A man had come through the Palms Motel and shot out every single window. She said the man was looking for someone and after shooting up the motel, he allegedly found both of his targets and he shot them dead. The tragedy is that not only the two men who he held a grudge against died that day, but two other innocent people died as well. And I thought about this guy and I tried to picture him. He's just come out of prison. He's on parole. And he's got this anger against these two men. And I can just picture him sitting in a prison cell day after day, dwelling on the grudge he's got against these two men. And it's ironic that he's in a prison cell because when we hold a grudge, we put ourselves in a prison cell. And he's sitting in the prison cell every day, stewing on it. And who knows, when you stew on something, it never becomes smaller. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And this guy gets released from prison. He can't hold it in anymore. And he goes on a rampage. As we look at the news each night, we see so many deadly crimes that are committed because the offender is holding a grudge. Grudges can be deadly. And there was definitely this potential for Esau. In verse 41, he says to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And if it wasn't for the warning of Rebekah to her prized son Jacob, it could have ended up in Jacob losing his life at the hands of his brother's grudge. Grudges can be deadly. One thing I've noticed over the years is that grudges are not only deadly for those that we hold them against, they can also start to kill us on the inside as well. And this is a more likely scenario, an application for each of us in this room. I can't imagine anyone here today going on a rampage I may be wrong, but I sincerely hope and pray that I'm right. But I do think at the same time that all of us are susceptible to holding a grudge that can start to impact our life, our relationships, our emotional, mental and physical health, and most tragically, our faith. There's been a couple of times in my life where I've held on to significant grudges. There was one in my teenage years I held a grudge against my best mate who did the wrong thing by me and I held on to that grudge for years and years and years and years and it fundamentally changed who I am as a person. The second time was in my adult years and I held on to a grudge against a man who did some things to me that I expected to be able to trust this person and they let me down in significant ways and for 12 months I held a significant grudge against this man. Both times I was mistreated in really hurtful ways and I remember feeling angry. And I remember holding a grudge and I felt completely justified on both occasions. They'd done the wrong thing. They'd caused hurt in my life. They didn't deserve my forgiveness. And so I held on to this grudge and I dwelt on it day after day after day. But now as I look back, I realise I wasn't justified. I was deceived. I was exactly where the devil wanted me to be. I had a persistent feeling of ill will or resentment 
that I thought about over and over and over again. And on both occasions, it started to change who I was. My joy was sucked out of my life and it was replaced with heaviness and sorrow. My peace shifted to restlessness. My easygoing nature morphed to anger and irritation. In my younger years, rage. My hope was replaced with feelings of being overwhelmed. And my faith walk with God felt more like walking and stumbling in the darkness than walking in the light with him. I was consumed by anger and I convinced myself that I was justified in that because of the way I was treated. And I wonder this morning, have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Someone said once that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The only person it ends up killing is you. That's what it did for me. And that's what it will do for each of us if we hold on to a grudge. The Bible doesn't go into great detail on what it did to Esau, but it does allude to the impact it had on his life. It said he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. He spoke angrily about Jacob. He wept aloud. And as he dwelt on it, we can only imagine how this grudge affected and perhaps even fundamentally changed his life. Esau refused to forgive Jacob. And we can relate to that. We understand why he would have found it so difficult. But we also see the devastating toll it took on their family relationships. Jacob had to flee for his life. He didn't see his family for over 20 years. Imagine the heartbreak for his mother and father. In those 20 years, Jacob got married to two separate women, had 11 sons and one daughter with two wives and two servants. His family grew and flourished. And all the while, he had no contact with the rest of his family. The parents were separated from their son. The grandparents never met their grandchildren. The children never met their uncle. And all those childhood memories and moments were all lost because of one man's deception and another man's grudge. What a tragedy. And I wonder, as they reflected on it in years later, I wonder if they thought to themselves, was it really worth it? In chapter 33, in a few weeks, we come to a beautiful moment of forgiveness and reconciliation as Jacob and Esau come back together and Jacob repents and Esau forgives and it's wonderful, but it took over 20 years to get to that point. For the average Australian, we have a lifespan of about 82 and a half years. And if we're lucky, that's what we get here on earth. So I wonder how many precious years, how many irreplaceable moments, how many amazing memories, how many lost relationships are we willing to sacrifice by holding on to a grudge? As Christians, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour. And all of us at one time or another will face this choice on whether to hold a grudge or to forgive. And we're called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, who on the cross, after being beaten and whipped and abused and mistreated, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus has set a benchmark for forgiveness for his people, not only in the way he forgave the Romans who crucified him or the Jewish leaders who had him put there, but also in the way he's forgiven you and the way he's forgiven me. And as his people, he's now set us apart, not as people who hold grudges, but as agents of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. As people look at this community here at Follow, they should be, see a group of people who live a radical life of love, grace and forgiveness. The sort of people that they look at them and see the way they love each other shows that they are truly Jesus' disciples. That's what people should see when they look at us. We're agents of reconciliation. And God wants us to live in relationship with one another. But we all can acknowledge today that there's often roadblocks on the way back to relationship. When something happens in our life, we face these roadblocks that we need to progress through. And I believe they can only be overcome by applying the gospel. A couple of weekends ago, a group of men of follow headed up to Belgrave Heights for the annual men's convention. And on the Saturday afternoon, they had some breakout sessions. And one of them was all about forgiveness and reconciliation. It was run by a Christian psychologist and counsellor. And by the end of the session, this is what the whiteboard looked like. Now, it was helpful for me on the day. I kind of figured this week it wouldn't be that helpful for you. And so I decided to simplify it and put it into a document on PowerPoint that hopefully will make a little bit more sense. And I've titled it The Post-Conflict Road to Relationship. You'll have this on the piece of paper that, I gave, that you were given on the way in this morning. The road to relationship post-conflict. Now on this um, diagram, you'll see on the left-hand side, you start with the event. So you're in relationship with someone, but an event happens, a conflict occurs. And we want to follow this road all the way through this, all the way to the far right-hand side, down the very bottom. The last oval you see is the place of relationship. So how do we go from conflict back to relationship? And so we're going to work through this diagram this morning. And we're going to start with the event or the conflict. We live in a fallen, broken world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You can't be any more upfront than that. This world is not going to be easy. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be free from all the troubles that this world has. In this world, you will have trouble. And so we know from life that conflict is inevitable. If you stay in this church community long enough, if you haven't been offended yet, praise the Lord, but just hang around a little bit longer because your time is coming. If you hang around long enough here, you'll be offended. You'll come across a conflict. If you're in this church long enough, if you're in a family, if you're in a friendship circle, if you're in a workplace, if you go to a school or a university, if you are breathing and you are on this planet, conflict is inevitable. Now, when conflict happens... Sometimes it's 100% someone's fault, right? So if I park my car at the shopping centre, someone backs into it and smashes it up and then drives off without leaving a note, they're just a jerk, right? That's 100% their fault. I parked in a normal spot, they smashed my car. In the case of sexual abuse, in the case of um, you know, unwarranted slander and gossip, it's 100% someone's fault, right? But if we're honest, when we think about conflict in our own lives, nine times out of ten, 99% of the time maybe, there's truth on both sides of the conflict. At the conference we were at the other week, I heard someone say, if you're 5% responsible for a conflict, take 100% responsibility for the 5%. If you're 5% responsible for a conflict, take 100% responsibility for the 5%. Let's consider Esau and Jacob. We think about their story and we look at it on the surface and we could easily think, well, it's 100% Jacob's fault, right? Jacob was a deceiver. I mean, he ripped his brother off twice. He, he, he did it. It was 100% his fault. And we could look at the story and go, 100% Jacob, 0% Esau. But the truth is, that's not how Scripture records it. 
In fact, in Hebrews 11, we, we come across the, the Hall of Fame that Greg was talking about last week, the, the, you know, the, the chapter of great faith. And Jacob gets a mention as one of these heroes, a hero of the faith. Esau gets his mention in the next chapter, chapter 12. And it says this, don't be godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And so we look at this story, and as we consider it afresh now that we've read that passage, we might think, okay, well, maybe it's not all Jacob's fault. Maybe it's 80% Jacob and 20% Esau. Maybe it's 5% Esau and 95% Jacob. But we realise there's a bit of truth on both sides of this issue. And it's the same for us. Very rarely will we have a conflict where we haven't played some part in that conflict. And the first roadblock on the road back to relationship is what I would say is pride, where we refuse to consider that we played any part in the situation, in a conflict we're often blinded and we don't take responsibility. We don't turn the mirror and consider our part in it because of our pride. There's been many times in my own life I've responded in that way. But I remember with a guy in my adult years who I held the grudge against, when I finally forgave and, and went to meet up with him 12 months later, I rang him and I said, I think it'd be great for us to meet up. And so we agreed to meet and we got together. And we spoke for about 45 minutes, just like old times. And after 45 minutes, I said, you know, the reason for the catch-up today is that I don't think either of us are really happy with the way things finished. And I said, I don't think it's really worth going into all the details because we're just on different pages with all that. But I also think it's really important that we're reconciled. I can't get up in my church and preach about forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation if I can't do it. And I think it's important that we're reconciled. And, and I think my part in that situation was probably around about 5%. And it came in result to some shocking treatment. And so by the time I got to that meeting, I'd already forgiven. I'd already repented for my part in the situation. I didn't need him to apologize. So I said to him, I just want to say sorry for my part in the situation. And I hope and pray that you can forgive me and we can be reconciled and one day we could be in relationship again. Now, I had never heard that guy apologize to anybody. And on that day, something happened. And he apologized unreservedly for the hurt he caused in my life. And it was a defining moment in my life. It was like a, a, a ton of bricks came off my shoulders. But I can guarantee you this, that if I went into that situation that day trying to prove I was right and he was wrong, there would be no forgiveness. His back would be up. There would be no reconciliation. There'd be no hope for a relationship short of a miracle. At this point on the road to relationship, to overcome the obstacle of pride, we need God-given humility. We need to own the 5% or the 20% or the 50% or the 100% that we have caused because the word tells us that God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. And so if we want to move towards relationship, we need to own our part in it. And if we don't choose to exercise humility at this part of the journey, we'll end up stuck on the next part of the journey, which is the emotional response. Now, we're all emotional beings, aren't we? We're created that way. We can't help but feel emotions, and emotions of hurt or disappointment in times of conflict when someone lets us down. That's part of being human. However, our response in those times will determine whether we move forward on the road to relationship or whether we detour or offer it, offer it sometimes permanently. If we don't respond to conflict in a godly way, there are two places we'll most likely end up, and the first one is the place of rage. 
When a conflict happens, we can respond with an outburst of rage. And we have a choice in conflict. We can take a bucket of water and we can douse the flames of conflict in our lives. Or we can take a jerry can of petrol and we can pour it on there and, and outburst in rage and blow the whole thing up. That's a choice that we have. The scripture says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Rage is an accelerant on the fire of conflict. You make that loud phone call. When you yell, when you say those hurtful things, when you send that angry text, you're blowing it up. And this is what Esau did. He responded with rage to the point that he wanted to kill his brother. Every time someone does something that offends you in community, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to push rage aside and to respond like God, who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Second thing we can do in emotional response, if we don't handle conflict in a godly way, is we can go to the place of resentment. Ephesians 4 says, In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Who here has been rock climbing before? Three people, awesome. Three of us have been rock climbing. And you'll know that when you're rock climbing, you want to get to the top of a, you know, one of those difficult walls. You can see the destination. And your upper body's hurting because you've been trying to pull yourself up. And if you can grab hold of a handhold, it, it will help, but it probably won't get you to the top. But if you can get hold of a good foothold, you can push yourself up. Sometimes you can launch from that and you can grab hold of the top of the wall and you can get where you want to go. This passage is saying that if we hold on to resentment, if we hold on to unforgiveness, it's like saying to the devil, here is a foothold for you to use. Jump on this, push yourself up and make progress in my life. And then every time we have resentment, we just keep giving foothold after foothold after foothold. And he becomes more dominant in our lives. And we start to live more like the devil than we do like God. It's important that we don't give the devil a foothold. Resentment in some ways is even more damaging than rage in the long run because it's giving the devil access to our hearts and to our minds over and over and over again. And so we've got to move through the emotional response with God's help, with self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when we get through the emotional response, we get to this place of acceptance. Now, acceptance is not just accepting what happened. It's not pretending it never occurred. It's not just accepting people mistreating you like a doormat. Acceptance is understanding that something has happened, but in that time choosing to put relationship over your need to be right. It's choosing to put peace over pride. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone except that person that you're holding a grudge against. Actually, that's not there. That's the new revised version that we choose to live by. But the word actually stops with a full stop and says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Where does this extend to? It extends to everyone. As far as it is with you, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. This is a healthy place of acceptance. You get to that point, you've navigated the emotions, you've accepted something's happened, but you have a desire to be at peace and to be in relationship with a person who has done 
the wrong thing. Now, when you get to that place, it's a healthy place, but you can't guarantee that the person you're having conflict will also be at that place. We can all imagine a conflict we've been in where the other person, no matter how hard we try for reconciliation, they're just not interested. They don't want to be in relationship. They tell you to get lost. They're angry. They're volatile. They get red in the face every time they see you. And, and they don't want to be in relationship anymore. At that point, we've just got to trust God's justice. You see, the temptation is that we think, oh, well, if they've treated me that way, I'm going to treat them that way. I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to treat them badly. But the truth is our job's not to avenge. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written in his mind to avenge, I will repay. Now, we don't want to desire for that to happen, do we? It's like God smite them. You know, sort it out. I can't wait to see your judgment. We don't want to get there. But when someone doesn't want to be reconciled, we've just got to give it to God. We've got to trust that God will take care of it. We've got to put our head on the pillow at the end of the night and say, as far as it depends on me, I've done everything I can to be at peace. I've done everything I can to seek reconciliation. I can't do anything more except trust that God will do something in that person's heart. So I'm going to trust God's justice in this situation. That's sad to end up there. But sometimes that's the reality of a conflict. That's where you'll end up until God does some further work in the other person's heart. But we pray that we'll move from that to an openness to forgiveness. Now, an openness to forgiveness requires these three things, rebuke, remorse, repentance. And so if someone's done something wrong to you, instead of just stewing on it forever and it becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, Matthew 18 says that you're to go to your brother, go to your sister, and tell them what they've done that's hurt you. And so you go to the person and you say, hey, the other day when you said those things, I just wanted to let you know that I love you and I want to be in a relationship, but what you said really hurt. You know, I was really disappointed with that and it made me feel like you didn't respect me or you didn't like me and I just wanted to talk through that. Now, in that case, if you go to someone, nine times out of ten, but they may not even realise they've said it. And they'll say, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't realise that that offended you. I didn't realise that that was going to hurt you and I'm sorry. Or, or they'll say, yeah, I did say those things and I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have. I should have held my tongue. I didn't mean it. I shouldn't have said it. And when it comes to that place, it's a great place. And so it's that place of rebuke. Rebuke is not an angry chastising of someone with a red face or angry. Rebuke is an invitation to relationship. I want to be in relationship with you. This is a roadblock, but we can work through it together. And when someone is open to that rebuke and there's remorse followed by repentance, we can move forward to the place of forgiveness, which is both given and it also needs to be received. It's both. Give and receive. And when forgiveness is given and received, you can move towards a place of reconciliation, which is a restoration of something that was lost. And when reconciliation occurs, you can then move towards relationship. Now, I don't want to be naive this morning, because sometimes the gap between these things is bigger than what's indicated on the chart. Sometimes you can be reconciled, but there still is a journey to take before there's real relationship and deepening of relationships. Because when trust has been broken, sometimes multiple times, it takes time for it to be re-established. It takes prayer. It takes God's help. But with God's help, relationship can be found at the end of the road. And God's heart is for us to end up there, reconciled in relationship with him and with one another. As we consider the story of Jacob and Esau, they really went through this whole process. And they found a number of different obstacles. Stop working. Along the way. Okay, it's not working. But there was obstacles at the event. There was obstacles with resentment. There was obstacles with rage. There was obstacles at the acceptance. There was obstacles with openness to forgiveness. And I really believe if we're going to move through it, 
We need to do it with God's help. Uh, Jacob and Esau, they got through this, but it took 20 years. 20 years of pain and loss with multiple roadblocks along the way. But we also need to acknowledge that it was prior to the cross. They were pre-cross followers of God. We are post-cross Christians where the power of the gospel has been revealed in the most stunning display of sacrifice, forgiveness and grace the world has ever seen. It was also prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Today is Pentecost Sunday. You and I don't walk alone. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. And so as we go through a process like this, we don't have to strive to do it ourselves. We can do it drawing on the power of God. As we deal with it at a human level, we do it with divine perspective, but not only divine perspective, but divine power as well. Applying the gospel is the key. I've heard people say many times over the years, I can forgive, but I can never be reconciled. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not even forgiveness. Thank you. Because you can be reconciled. It might seem impossible with God, but with man, but with God all things are possible. To say I can't be reconciled is to say that the cross is not enough, but it is. It is. It's powerful. It's life-changing. Some people carry grudges and disappointments and unforgiveness all their lives, all the way through to old age. And they hold these things like collector cards. And if they're not angry at someone or something, they'll find someone or something else to be angry at. And their whole life is like that. As Christians, we're not called to that kind of life. It's for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. And so if you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders with grudges and unforgiveness, take on the words of Elsa, the prophetess from the, word, from the movie Frozen, who said, let it go. Let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Amazing woman of God. For Christ's sake, let it go. Literally, for Christ's sake, don't keep holding on to the things Christ carried for you at the cross. Let it go. Repent. Forgive. Reconcile. Do whatever it takes today to live in the freedom and relations, relationships that Jesus died for you to enjoy. Stop making excuses about why your circumstances don't apply. Stop seeing it from a human perspective, but overcome it with divine power because the gospel can cover it all. I'd go as far to say that our forgiveness is directly linked to our forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus a question. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother? The rabbis believe that you should forgive someone up to three times. They like baseball. Three strikes, you're out. So Peter comes in a holy moment and he says to God, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Double it and add one? Jesus says, hey, yeah, that's a good start. It's not seven, though. It's 70 times seven. Now, for all the mathematicians here today who are doing some quick calculations, it's 490. And you're thinking, well, my husband or my wife or my brother or sister, yeah, I've probably forgiven them 489 times. So they're on their last strike. Let me just burst your bubble today and say this is not an accounting exercise. It's a figure of speech for an unlimited amount of times. And Jesus illustrates it by telling Peter a story. He goes on to say that there's a king who had a servant who owed him the equivalent of millions of dollars. And the king went to settle the accounts, but the servant couldn't pay. And so he ordered that the servant, as well as his wife and children, be sold into slavery until they could recover the debt. 
But the servant fell to his knees and he pleaded for mercy. He begged the king not to do it. And so the king, in an incredible example of grace, took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. The very same servant, a short time later, came across a fellow servant who owed him the equivalent of a few bucks. And he demanded payment from this other servant. The man also pleaded for mercy, but the servant refused to show mercy. And he threw him into prison until he could repay the debt. News got back to the king. He heard about what had happened. And he called the ungrateful, unmerciful servant in. And he said, you wicked servant, I cancelled your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all we owed. The question is this, who's the king in the story? It's God the Father. Who's the unmerciful servant? It's any of us who refuse to forgive. When we've been forgiven of every sin we've ever committed, when we've experienced the incredible life-changing grace of Jesus Christ, how could we ever choose not to forgive? How could we keep holding on to grudges? We're called to be different than that. With God's help, we can be. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward now because Jesus finishes that story by saying, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. I want to finish today by inviting also the prayer team forward. But I want to ask the question today, what grudge do you need to let go of? Who is it in your life that you need to forgive today? What do you need to let go of? I want to finish with the Lord's Prayer. I think it's important because we rattle this prayer off sometimes from you know, our own kind of memory. But sometimes we don't understand what we're praying because it's more about forgiveness than we realise. I'm going to read it out aloud first and then we're going to read it together to close and then the prayer team will come forward and if you need prayer, I'd invite you to come forward this morning. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Listen to this bit. As we have also forgiven our debtors. I wonder if God was to forgive you today the way you forgive others, whether it would be forgiveness at all. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. We can easily think, okay, he's moving from forgiveness to temptation. No, no, it's a linking sentence between forgiveness and forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's read this together this morning. Our Father in heaven. That means that you read together with me. On the count of three. One, two, three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. They're powerful words. There's two things I know to be true. Number one is holding a grudge will kill you on the inside. Number two, prayer is powerful. Thanks for listening to our message this week. 
If it's stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.